Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 146. With Dr. Howard Rankin, the host of the How Not to Think podcast that runs on the premise that people aren't logical, they're psychological, with the emphasis on the psycho, which made me laugh at the same time it made me think, how are we not supposed to think? And the research on this topic began. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, now living in Arizona, and like many of our listeners have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high performance strategies in our schools, sports and the workplace with ideas that we can all use, understand and implement immediately for improved results. This week's guest, Dr. Rankin, an expert in cognitive neuroscience, recently published his book, I think, therefore I am wrong, which looks at the many ways we can sabotage our thinking through cognitive biases, binary thinking, false assumptions, and numerous other strategies. The How Not to Think podcast based on his book examines how this false reasoning manifests in many areas of society through myths and conventional wisdom. On his podcast that I'll be a guest on, Howard speaks with leaders in their fields to examine the impact of faulty thinking that occurs in every sphere of life. Dr. Rankin has extensive expertise and knowledge in the areas of psychology, cognitive neuroscience, and neurotechnology. He's also an experienced speaker and best-selling award-winning author. Dr. Rankin has written 12 books in his own name, co-written another nine, and ghost-written 30 others, all nonfiction. He's also published more than 30 scientific articles, has been a consultant to the National Institute of Health and the World Health Organization. His work has been featured in many newspapers and magazines, and he's appeared on national networks, including CNN, ABC, CBS, BBC, and on The View in 2020. I mentioned he hosts the podcast, How Not to Think, and is the author of I Think, Therefore, I Am Wrong, a guide to bias, political correctness, fake news, and the future of mankind. Let's meet Dr. Rankin and see what we can learn about improving the way we think. Welcome, Dr. Rankin. Thank you so much for being here today to share your knowledge about your insights on your recent book and research but your book is, I think, therefore I am wrong, that you say is about epistemology. And our past speaker, Tom Beekbane, on episode number 144, said that was the origin of his book called How to Understand Everything. Can we start right away with the most obvious question? What is the problem with our thinking? How is it illogical? And why are people psychological with an emphasis on the psycho? Okay, well, let's start with that. The problem that people have, or we all have, is because we have consciousness, we think that uh, our, you know everything we do is very conscious and thought out. The fact of the matter is, actually, we'd be surprised how little of that actually 
is conscious. Now, there's a difference in consciousness as in, oh, I'm aware of this, and consciousness, I have consciously decided to do this. Okay, there's a big difference, but that gets confused a lot of the time. And simply because we have an awareness of doing something, we assume we must have therefore initiated it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that turns out, I believe, at the current state of knowledge, always have to put that asterisk there, right? The current, current state of knowledge, that's actually not what happens. A lot of what we do, feel, think, is automatic, it's habitual, and really there's no quotation mark thought that's gone into consciousness, conscious planning, um, and what might somewhat times be called critical thinking. And of course, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Daniel Kahneman and all the stuff subsequently on behavioral economics, but that's you know, he divides the world, as it were, into system one thinking, which is really more the sort of acknowledgement of what's going through my head, and yeah, I agree, uh, to system two thinking, which is critical thinking, which is, let me think about this, let me go study, let me research it, does it really make sense, etc., etc. So it's a lot of being based on our past experience and habits, um, do we have control of it? How would we have control? Uh, well, that's an extreme, well, that's an extremely good question. Now, again, it depends what you mean by control. But I think um, theoretically we have control of that. But in real terms, we don't. Uh, certainly anywhere near as much control as we think. You know, something comes up. We think about it, something pops up in our head, oh, you know, oh, yeah, that's fine, that's right. You know, we're really more interested as an organism in emotional comfort than deep thinking. And, you know, that serves a purpose. I mean, so many things in life, we don't. There's a value in not having to think very deeply about it, whether that's driving. You know, when you first learn to drive, you have to think consciously about every move you make once you've learned you're not even conscious you're doing it unless something an emergency and that's a good example of things we do where we think we're conscious but not really not really you're not really um and so there are many things like that in life that are sort of habitual that shape the way we think the world is um and we accept it because it's convenient it's easy it doesn't take energy and all of those things and as i say for some things yeah you don't you don't want to do that you know where should we go to dinner tonight well you don't need a 45 minute you know dive into all the factors that are associated with all the possible restaurants you could go to and all the experiences you i mean you don't really need to do that that's kind of a waste of energy and space so yeah let's go here We'll go there. But of course, there are a lot of things in life that are a bit more important than where to go to dinner. Uh, and that's where perhaps we could do better when we don't think about them. And so you're saying in order to get to this deeper level of thinking that you cover, that we have to stop and consciously 
take the time to not be automatic? How do we know we're thinking and not automatic? Well, thinking is hard work. Okay, so um, very interesting data that I, it's actually relatively old data, but I came across recently is that um, we are capable of processing about 11 million bits of information a second. Consciously, we operate maybe at 20 bits a second. <laughs> In other words, there's a vast amount going on inside and outside that we're simply not paying attention to or aware of at all. Um, and some of that shapes, some of that shapes our thoughts and feelings and behavior. Uh, some of it's irrelevant and is usefully discarded. Um, and it gets a very complex equation there in terms of that relationship between all the stuff that we're taking in and what we are conscious of. Now, the other thing about consciousness is it, it seems so important because we can't be conscious of the things we're not conscious about. Mm -hmm. So we don't know that. Cool. So all we know is our consciousness. So we think, oh, well, you know, that's who I am. Mm, not really. And that becomes huge when we're talking about any aspect of behavior this distinction between the conscious I or ego, if you will, and me, the totality of me that includes consciousness, but is more than that. And that has relevance to performance and education and a lot of the things that I know you are interested in on this podcast. Exactly. So there was this activity that we were told to do. It was to read a chapter of a book every day for 10 days consistently, and we had to check it off. And you would think that would be simple, you know, I could just get up every day and, and do this, but most people fell off. I would say it was one of the most difficult things I've ever done. You said thinking is hard work. Uh, that was really hard work because it was a dedication to get up and make sure I fit that into my day around everything. So would you say, what would you say would be a way that we can improve this? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just about to bring out uh, another book um, called Intuitive Rationality. Uh, which looks at this blending of the heuristics that we use along with rationality. Um, and, you know, part of that, and we use, uh, not surprisingly, perhaps Sherlock Holmes as, a, as an example. And Sherlock Holmes was a great one for ignoring stuff that was irrelevant. And he said, don't put in your brain attic, which was his metaphor. Don't clutter it up with a ton of furniture that you don't need. Unfortunately, today, we live in what's called the attention economy, where there are gazillions of sources trying to grab our attention. And that's where we put a lot of energy, in, you know, spend a lot of time on social media or whatever it is. That's exhausting. That's taking up an enormous amount of energy. And you say, well, let's do something like read a chapter today. Man, who's got time to do that? You know, the energy is, you know, we were talking before about bits of inf 
information a second, when you're doing something like that, you're down to about six bits of information a second. It's really slow. Yeah. It's slow. It's, it's hard work. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite uh, characters, George Bernard Shaw, said, I've made a good living for myself thinking twice a week. And actually, if you think that means what we're talking about now, deep dive, yeah, he's right. How many people, how many people do a deep dive on anything once a month, let alone once a week, mm -hmm. like let alone once a day, right? Yeah, so true. Mm. It is. So, what inspired you to write a book on this and then launch your podcast on this topic? Did something happen, or you're just interested with all your writing to go this direction? Um, well, you know, after a long career in psychology, um, you know, as an academic and then as a clinical practitioner, et cetera, et cetera, I'm obviously one that's confronted with these things all the time, this issue of what's control, how much control do we have, how, how do we get control. Um, and I also started doing some neurofeedback um, about, 12 years ago, as it was sort of cranking up doing neurofeedback and was fascinated there about that intersection of neuroscience and, and psychology. And this was kind of a natural fit because around the same time, all this behavioral economics and cognitive bias uh, stuff came out and I really got into that. So that's really the foundation of my interest in this, um, you know, based on a long a long career dealing and thinking about these issues um yeah i'm a little weird i mean i just happened to be in a, in a career where you know you had to think about these things or you should i personally think uh and so and of course we live in a changing world so these things were not part of my training at all right right you know it's what it's like those practitioners, you know, we got our degrees 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Uh, that's not what we were taught. In fact, interestingly enough, my background, I went, did my, all my postgraduate work at the University of London at the Institute of Psychiatry, which at the time was very, very behaviorally oriented, very behaviorally oriented. Um, and so, you know, the issue of consciousness in a way didn't, didn't really come up um, that much. But obviously it's critical. It is. It is. And I love making connections to past speakers. And what I see with your work, I connected to my past interview with Tom Beekbain. He had his book, How to Understand Everything, that I was mm -hmm. baffled with. I had to tell him I need some help as I was creating his questions because I didn't understand everything. And he talks about it looking at things from a different angle. And with all the books you've written, you've got a knack for uncovering ways to t talk about something from a different angle in a way that someone might have not heard it that way. Why is it important to be able to see things from a different perspective? Like, what does that do to our thinking? Yeah, very important. Well, if you think of your consciousness as an editor, are the lens through which you see the world and it edits what you uh, think and, and absorb at this conscious level. If you think of that, then clearly it's 
um, clearly it's at best a generalization, right? Um, as the British statistician George Box, whom I quote in my book, says about scientific models, but I think you could say that about ideas, all models are wrong, some are useful. In other words, they're generalizations, and we must never forget that. We like certainty. We live in a world where certainty and control that comes from certainty is important to us. And so we overvalue that. But the fact is, facts are just probabilities based on what we know today. Tomorrow it might change. And that has big implications for lots of things in life. But interestingly enough, um, I did a show one time with a guy who was a medium he claimed and before the show he said when were you just give me the date and how are you were born howard i did and then he came back and said okay howard you're often kind of like the smart guy in the room but you always have you always sort of smartly cynical and have another angle how did this guy know that about me i mean and interestingly enough uh, I thought that was something that I had developed over years. Um, many years ago, I was uh, looking at some old stuff from my childhood that my mom had kept. And, you know, there was something from elementary school. And there was that style right there. Even then, I would never have thought that, that at eight or nine, that was sort of my predominant mindset. Um and so, I, you know, I think I think that's interesting because a lot of times people think they develop these things. Oh, I went to, uh, you know, I went this and this happened. I ended up here. But then actually, if you investigate further, Ooh. they've forgotten the fact that actually you were really interested in this when you were four years old. Uh, so, it, which is fascinating. So that's how I get into it. And for me, that is, that's exciting and enjoyable to think of different ways this could be seen. I think it's very important. Uh, I think it's important to think that way. Now, I know, again, you're, you talk a lot about education, uh, and it speaks a lot to the delivery of any sort of education in any environment. Um, and I think that's really critical. Do you just go with the same myths and stereotypes and generalizations and probabilities? Or do you try and look at them differently? And do you see them for what they are? See a different, the same thing, a completely different way based on their experiences and the fact our brains are all different based on our lives. So perception was one of the higher faculties that Bob Proctor would talk about all the time back when I worked with him in the seminars. It was like, look at, always try to look at something from someone else's point of view not your own. Yes, absolutely. And that is really critical for all sorts of reasons um, because it, the implicit assumption there is that your view is skewed. Everyone's view is skewed by their own experience, right? So you need to find out what other people are thinking about this. It might not be right, whatever right is, um, but it's uh, it's important to do that, you know, this sort of walk in other people's shoes is a bit more difficult than most people think.
because then you've got to suspend your own conscious editor and try and get into somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I was, after one of my podcast interviews, I was talking to my good friend, Greg Link. He's from, the, he helped Stephen Covey's organization take the Seven Habits book all mm -hmm. over the world. And um, after some discussion, I came to the realization that the more I'm learning through these interviews that I'm doing, and also that you're doing on your podcast, the more I realized I don't know anything at all. And then Greg texted me that it was, he said, there's a quote that originated from the American author Warner Earhart, who was quoting the Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Mm. What do you think about this? The more we're learning, why does it take us into a rabbit hole where we realize we know nothing at all? Well, I think in many ways, that's what wisdom is about. Wisdom is realizing what you don't know. And of course, once you uncover something, then that reveals a whole lot of other possibilities that now lay in front of you that you didn't see before because you're at a different level. And I think that that is, that, that is important for open-mindedness to realize that learning one thing is simply going to open up a whole lot of other possibilities for you. It doesn't stop there. You know, the difference between the uh, skeptics and the, the stoics. Uh, you know, one was it never stops there and so you can never find the ultimate solution. The other is, yeah, but sometimes enough information is useful for a particular situation. Uh, and so you perhaps don't have to know everything there is. Um, but, um, but that, but that is important. There is no end point, I think, when we're talking about knowledge. There is no end point. We don't, we, Goodness knows, we as a human race, we probably know a minimal percentage of what is even possible for us with our brains to know. Um, and so I think that's a great mindset to have. It also keeps you humble. <laughs> uh, that wow, that's fascinating. I know more than I did before, but I still don't. I still know very, relatively little, and all it shows me is what I don't know. True. True. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now the questions I have for you, these ones, they start to get a bit deep now. So chapter one of your book is titled, Is Reality an Illusion? And Einstein said this. Mm -hmm. What does this mean? I could think about this for a day. <laughs> At least a day, I hope. But what it means is that what our consciousness presents to us is a version, our version of whatever reality is, you know. And so, you know, when people say, well, this is my reality, I mean, I understand what they're saying. I'm not sure I'd use that word. I'd say this is my experience. This is my perception. But reality is something that, you know, a group of people, a significant group of people agree on, right? So in a sense, it's difficult to have a personal reality, even though it feels like that, and even though everyone's... Um, perception of reality is indeed individualized based on their experiences. So the, the notion the notion and that I think is important is that our consciousness presents us with a version of reality, not necessarily reality. And so that's Einstein's question. Is it is it real or is it an illusion? Maybe it's somewhere in the between. How do we know? 
Um, don't know that we can know for sure. And so that becomes a little disconcerting for people because we want to know, because we want to feel in control and survival and emotional security is important. Um, but actually, I think if you were a wise, a really wise person would say, that's what I think now, but I know that's not the end of the story. Uh, and I might change my mind tomorrow or something may come up, you know, in two weeks or, or what have you. Now, that becomes a very difficult philosophy to lead life on generally, because, you know, you have to make decisions like, uh, what job am I going to take? Am I going to take this job? Where am I going to live? Am I going to get married? I mean, all of those things. You, know, you have to make decisions and you have to realize you're not going to have perfect knowledge. There is no such thing. But what is important to realize is the editor that you have developed or has been developed for you that determines your version of reality. And that, that can be changed. Um, and I do think that there are people, a lot of people who, whose version, whose editor, for example, might be very critical, uh, and they end up very anxious or very second guessing themselves all the time. And the one thing there that I think is, is important to distinguish, our consciousness is not, which, you know, the ego, the I, is not who you are. You are more than that. What is often in philosophy called me, not I. So the ego wants to feel it's in control and it controls everything, but it's overrated. There's something much more than just consciousness. There's you. All the habits, all the instincts, all the genetics, all of those things that constitute what goes on inside you and who you are way more than consciousness can reach is me and and i think that's important now that comes out a lot in when people talk about flow flow experiences or meditation when they say try to get rid of that conscious editor and just experience just experience the sound or your breathing that's an attempt to learn to get rid of the editor and be there as an experiencer and be in that state. And what's interesting is if you look at performance, whether we're talking about sports performance, musical performance, uh, artistic performance, whatever, people talk about that. <laughs> you know, if you want to be a really good actor, you can't be conscious while you're acting. <laughs> Right. Yep. If you want to be a really good musician, you can't be thinking about, you know, which keys to press while you're playing the it's music. Automatic. It's automatic. It, that's the whole value of practice and training. It gets beyond consciousness. You can watch yourself doing it and enjoy it, but you're not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And, and in a way, although that's been used a lot to talk about performance, that's sort of really life in general you know are you just being there as you and you're not really thinking about it or are you aware of it but you're not trying to interfere with it or are you criticizing or commenting or trying to change it um 
and I'm sure all of those come into play at different stages, but how much, to what degree, when, those are important issues. This is deep. This is deep. So, <laughs> so what is logic then? So if we're, you know, we're, we're unconscious of how we're behaving most of the time, what is logic and why do you think it's involved in some of the problems with our thinking? Well, the problem with logic is there's a couple of issues with it. One, um, logic is a system, right? So you can apply it. You can apply it, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily impact the situation. For example, if I think this, uh, my, the, my table lamp is talking to me and telling me to do horrible things, it is perfectly logical for me to unplug it. Okay. That's a logical exercise in what is a sort of crazy, illogical scenario. So that's, so that's one thing. The second thing um, is rationality is overrated um, for some of the things we talked about before. Now, you know, Descartes and the Reformation, it was, it's all about logic, it's all about reason. But the problem is, that's great if you have every bit of information, then you can make a totally logical deduction. But hardly ever do we have all the information. We can't possibly know all the information. So there's a limit there mm -hmm. on what rationality can tell us, right? And, and again, if you recognize there's something beyond consciousness, you know, like a mind, an intelligent mind-body system, um, that has some intuition that may provide something. Now, that intuition is a complex word. It means different things, and it needs to be defined. The other thing about rationality is, again, it's misinterpreted a lot of the time in a number of ways. I mean, people, it's very easy to make the wrong assumption, you know. Um, um, all vegetables are green. Uh, uh, broccoli, uh, uh, broccoli is green. Therefore, broccoli must be a vegetable. Well, that's true, but not for the assumption that you had. People make false assumptions. And again, the other thing is the probabilities. That we're talking about probabilities. And although this may seem very abstract, let's take it to something um, that people can relate to. Let's suppose you, have, you get diagnosed with a condition. And... The doctor says to you, you know, people with this condition, you know, typically are dead within three years. If you believe that, what do you think will happen? You're going to be dead within three years. Three years. Okay. If the doc says 86% of people have this are dead within three years, you know, another 5% last five years, another 4% last 12 years. And so that changes your perception. But because we want to generalize and we don't recognize probabilities that much, that's what we do. And therefore, that can be really problematic. 
Um, as an example of that, I have a neighbor who was having some issues and went to the doctor um, and the doc said, I'm 95% sure based on these tests that it's nothing. And she said, that's not good enough. <laughs> How do I get 100%? He says, well, you have to go, go, you know, here and have this special procedure. And she said, okay, I'm doing it. When she came around from the procedure, the doc said to her, you're one lucky woman. We just found the beginning of pancreatic cancer. Okay. Now, the doctor was right. 95% chance that there's nothing. Right. But that doesn't mean zero. But she knew. She knew. She had the feeling. She was not going to accept that. Right. right? Uh, and I've had, I've had a, I know several people. Who've, who've had that sort of a mindset and it has absolutely changed the trajectory of an illness, um, even a genetic illness. I have somebody, uh, a friend who has Huntington's disease, which is a genetic disease that runs in her family. And 25 years ago, diagnosed and said, yep, you've got the gene for Huntington's disease. And what she said was, this isn't for me. Now, what she wasn't saying, I don't have the gene. She wasn't saying, I don't believe in the diagnosis. What she's saying is, I'm going to find a way, as much as possible as I can, to mitigate this manifesting as a disease. And that was like 20 plus years ago. And I don't think she's ever had a headache, let alone anything else since. Yeah. Right? So the messages that we give people, especially from authorities, you know, and people aren't trained in statistics and probabilities and all this stuff we're talking about. You know, this is alien to most people, but it plays a role in their everyday life. Huge role, because the person that's being told that by their doctor would have to trust some other source not the doctor and that's not easy to do yeah and again one of the things from i think therefore i am wrong is to make it easy for ourselves we do get into binary thinking it's either this or that and that really leads us astray right so it's in a way it's not uh, either i should trust this doctor or, or i don't <laughs> He's given me correct information, but if I actually understand that information in terms of a probability, then I accept there are other probabilities and I need to go and investigate them. That doesn't mean the first doctor was bad or wrong or what have you, um, or I don't believe him. It's just, he told me there was a 95% chance. He didn't say you're gonna get it. So there's a 95% chance. It's almost like a hypnotic language pattern where somebody's going to take that in and accept it without thinking about it, right? So I think, I think this happens so many ways in critical aspects of life. One of the things is uh, numeracy. People are really poor at numbers, and particularly in the U.S., don't do very well. And particularly poor at compounding. They don't understand compounding. Uh, you know, there's this, and because once I brought it up, you know, the answer is I'll give you a penny every day and double it. You know this one. I'll double it every day. What amount I give you? 
Now, I'll give you $3 million now, or you can let me give you a penny a day. What will you take? Most people say, ah, $3 million. But a penny doubled every day turns out over 31 days to be more than $5 million. Okay. People don't understand compounding, which is massive in financial decisions. Mm-hmm. Oh, how much, in, how much am I really going to pay on this mortgage or credit card or, or what have you? Things like COVID. Oh, I, I'm only... Yeah, I'm, I can only infect a couple of people. Uh, no, you could infect thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Right? People don't understand that. Right, right. What about our beliefs or more specifically our self-limiting beliefs? And I know you've talked about it a little bit already, but what are they and how do they influence our results? Do, how do we even know we have them? Well, that's an extremely good question. We don't know we have them. Hopefully, it's so much easier, of course, for other people to see them than ourselves. Um, And hopefully other people in a kind, loving way, when you have them, you know, point them out to you and and maybe help you resolve them. Um, But our beliefs can be self-limiting, obviously. Again, it's, they're going to influence that consciousness, the editor, that is going to shape your lens, how you see Quidditch mark reality, how you see yourself. Um, and that is massive. That's going to determine how you think about yourself. Um, and it's very easy to acquire a self-limiting belief. You know, you can't be great at everything. And this speaks to education. Um, I've known uh, people in my past, just from my clinical experience, people who labeled themselves as dumb because they did not fit the conventional education system. Mm -hmm. But they were anything but dumb. They had phenomenal skills, but they didn't recognize them. They wouldn't allow themselves to recognize them because the conventional education system you know, is based around basically verbal memory. And if that's not your thing, you're probably not going to do very well in tests and exams and what have you. You may be a genius artist, musician, technician, what have you. But that's a problem. And that's a problem. And of course, ideally, I don't know that it's practical, but ideally any sort of training and education needs to be geared towards the student, not the teacher. It needs to be student-centric, right? Right, and that's what Sir Ken Robinson talked about with our schools lacking creativity and trying to recognize those students that could skyrocket, that are just not skyrocketing sitting in a chair. No, and again, that diff- and there's a huge difference between factual knowledge and experience, factual knowledge and experience, right? And uh, that experiential learning, I think, is very important, very important. That's the difference between knowing a fact and feeling it, as it were, and being able to use it in many, many ways. I mean, I've said, and in fact, I say, and I think, therefore, I'm wrong, hey, you know, if you brought me, and I actually got this because somebody said this to me, said, oh, my kid's not interested in school. He's just interested in basketball. 
well, you know what? I could teach that kid everything he needs to know using basketball. Absolutely. And he'd be so engaged in it and he would understand it. Sit him in a boring classroom. Yeah. Now he'd be thinking about basketball while you're trying to teach him math. Okay. And, and, you know, that's so obvious. And, um, it actually, it's not just obvious in education. It's obvious in everything, particularly communication. I mean, I was 20 years into my career trying to convince people to change behavior or get them to do things for their health when I realized uh, nobody has ever taught me anything about communication. And so actually I wrote a book called Power Talk, The Art of Effective Communication. I just brought out a second edition, sort of a little upgraded. It's still so relevant today, you know, education, communication, influence, they're all about meeting people where they're at. If you don't do that, forget it. Right. Uh, And this is an interesting one. This was a question I used to ask any client that I had that was of student age, could be in kindergarten or graduate school. A lot of them were really younger than graduate school, but what is your favorite subject? Now, what they came back with um, was not a subject, neither was it lunch or recess or playtime, okay? What did they say? Their, their personal interest, I'm gonna guess. Close. Now, don't feel bad about this, I was at a Yale School of Education think tank, and those guys didn't get it either. It, what they said was, the subject taught by my favorite teacher. Mm. Wow. Bingo. Mm-hmm. A teacher that reaches them, the mm-hmm. teacher that excites them, that engages them. Duh, of course. You know, you could have English one year, well, a personal example, history one year taught by somebody is just boring as hell and history taught by someone who takes you back into that time and makes it so exciting, right? One's a historian, one's a teacher. Mm-hmm. One's just trying to get you through the exam where you can write the dates of the battles. The other person's trying to give you what history really is about. Experience of it. Mm-hmm. So experience is critical. But do we think of that education as experience? None of this. None of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think Ken Robinson, the guy from Harvard, um, on about, you know, the role of exercise in in priming the brain. John Rady. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, all of that stuff, we know it. You know, it's 20 years old. Why aren't we, why aren't we doing it? Mm Mm-hmm. No, I realize it's not as simple as that. But uh, actually, my last podcast with a guy who's really on the same track, it'd be good to guest for you, Mark Hirschberg, who is a very interesting, smart guy. Um, I'll refer him, <laughs> I'll refer you to him. But we were talking about that. It was really about that. Wow. Engagement. Yeah. Engagement is about experience. It's not about facts. Facts on their own mean nothing. Yeah, I was bored to tears in school. 
And it wasn't until I started to get interested in the topic of neuroscience that I could actually sit here and do the work, but I couldn't do it back then. It, to sit down and read a book on neuroscience, there's no way I would have done it back in the day. But but how did how did you get interested in neuroscience and tying the brain into this? Where did that start for you? Um, so I had my practice, um, but I was I was starting to see stuff coming out about um, neurofeedback, and at that around that time, neurofeedback became very possible to do. It did not require a lab or huge equipment or what have you. In fact, amazingly enough, you can run, this was 10 years ago, you can run an EEG off your computer. It's as simple as that. Put the, uh, put the cap on the person, plug the program in, and away we go. And you, you get decent EEG data. Uh, amazing, amazing. And and again, talking at the level of, of relating to something experiment, experientially rather than a fact. Why that is valuable, I mean, it's valuable. You can see what's actually going on in the brain. But the key word there is you see it. Um, and not long after I got into this, I've been doing about three or four years, um, I ended up doing one of the first experiments in the public school system using EEG brain maps to look at um, disabled or troubled elementary school kids. Mm -hmm. So we would do an EEG brain map and look at their maps and see what was going on with them in their brain. Not talking to them, not talking to their parents, not talking to the psychologist, what is going on in their brain. And I remember one guy came in, his, he and his wife had obviously been through some unpleasantness and a divorce. Uh, his wife said, oh, you know, I've forgotten the name of the kid. Joey's definitely got ADD. And dad said, no, that's baloney. He can pay attention, things he wants to. He's great. I read with him and it's just my wife being, you know, a usual. So we did the a, uh, we did the EEG of this kid, and he actually came out with the profile that was totally correlated with attention deficit disorder. Now, and that was one of the first that was accepted. Then it's so widely found that there is a pattern of brainwave activity, increased theta activity, lower beta activity in certain parts of the brain that are absolutely correlated with an attentional deficit. So I said to the guy's dad, look, 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 I'm not just telling you, look here on the brain. Look, you see all this activity here, all this, you see this on there. This is typical of a child with ADD. He started to cry. Mm. And then he said, okay, I'll make an appointment. Now, if I had not been able to show him what was going on in the brain, he would have said, ah, doc, you're just like my wife, forget it, right? How do you know unless you look? How do you know unless you can relate to it? You're just telling me something, how do I know? You're showing me that's what's going on in my son's brain? Holy cow. And that's one of the great values of the relatively easy application of things like EEG brain maps and neurofeedback today, 
you can see what's going on, not just give an opinion. Right. And there's a big difference there. Um, and so I hope that, and I, I see this more and more, that neuroscience like that will be integrated into clinical practice because it needs to be. Right? It needs to be. On the basis of experiential, you know, an expert, a professional can tell you all they want. And does that really make you believe? Now, especially where most professionals are taught how to communicate really effectively. No, they're not going to believe it. Um, and so, you know, that was that was huge for me, that, that neuroscience, being able to see what's going on, not guess what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right? Definitely. Um, and so that, you know, that was that was very, very interesting. Very interesting. You know, I like to say, well, okay, let's suppose you take your cars having problems and you take it into the, you know, the shop and the mechanic spends 45 minutes talking to you about your driving. Uh, or don't you say at some point, uh, would you like to look under the hood and see what's going on? <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and neuroscience and the relative ease of doing these procedures now makes that possible to look under the hood. Uh, again, we're not going to get binary and say, well, it's either this or the other, but it's, how can this explain it? This is what's happening. How does it, you know, just again, opens up more questions, but it does allow you to go deeper. Definitely. Dr. Rankin, I could keep asking you questions here, but I know we've got to kind of start tying it in. So if you were to take all of the questions I've asked you here on how not to think, what would you want educators to think about in the classroom or if you're in the corporate space? How, what, what do we do with our thinking to make sure that we're rational beings, not psycho? crazy beings how do we how do we use this i think the first thing and that was really the point of the how not to think book is simply to be aware first is first steps always awareness right be aware that this is happening to everybody all the time okay uh and that you have to have some insight into your thinking process Okay. And you have to understand that. You have to understand that it's going to be influenced by so many factors, your experience, your training, your whatever it is, the environment, all of those potential biases that come into play. And you have to account for them. And even if you do a good job, you're not going to account for all of them, but you're going to be better off. And interestingly, the predictive analytics program that I was talking about when I was talking about intuitive rationality is actually a computer program designed by a friend of mine, been working on it for years, that combines lot data with 12 cognitive biases that we know really influence thinking. And his predictions are phenomenal. <laughs> they pretty much outdo everything else. And that's partly because he has not just used rationality, but he's used the heuristics that people use to make decisions in making predictions. Um, so I think that's the first thing is aware, is always aware. And that's now awareness itself is not good enough. 
then it has to lead to the next step is, okay, what do I do about that? Which is check yourself, check, check your heuristics at the door. Almost, you know, when you're thinking about something, how influenced are you by all of these different things? What other people have said, where you're sitting, what the temperature is. I mean, you know, there's a lot of data on how all sorts of what seem to be really extraneous factors influence decisions. You know, like judges are much harsher, you know, when they're hungry, okay, uh, or where they're uncomfortable than when they're not. And so I think the awareness of that, that's what I'm trying to get across to people is awareness, because that's the first step. Love it. Love it. Awareness is, is huge for me as well, being self-aware. It's a big... Yes. Absolutely. Well, mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much for your time today, sharing your thoughts, your ideas, your podcast on how not to think. For people to learn more about you, what's the best place? Is it your website? Um, yeah, probably my website. I've, I've got a couple. Um, HowNotToThink.com probably is the best one based on this conversation that we've had now. Um, I do have a Facebook page called uh, Howard Rankin Books, um, where to talk about books that I'm working on. Um, so those two places, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all stuff like that. And How Not to Think as a podcast is like yours on many different platforms. And I'll put all the links to the show notes and I look forward to being on your show. Yes speaking again same time next week it's going to be fun and um, what would be your final thoughts for this just to wrap this up and tie it in a bundle well again i think it's about increasing awareness to recognize that wisdom is about knowing what you don't know and understanding the thinking process and if you can do that you're going to be making much better decisions your judgments and perceptions are probably going to be more accurate, not perfect by any stretch, but probably more accurate for sure. So that's what we want. Thank you so much, Dr. Rankin. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much too. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.